0: Hi, everybody. My name's Roger. I'm one of the leaders of the church. Earlier, you saw Chris there who was, uh, uh, regaled in, um, shorts. So we've been, we've been, I say that because you won't appreciate that if you're watching this online. I know some of you, that's the reason why you're not here today. Uh, but for others of you, you're here because you thought Chris might have been wearing shorts and you've had an opportunity, uh, to actually see this man with his legs. Would you like to stand up one more time, Chris? No, he wouldn't. He's all embarrassed. What do you think, Mum? Should he stand up one more time? Oh, you're bigger than your mother, so she's not going to overrule that. Well, it's good to see all of you, whatever your reason here for coming or for watching on live stream. Uh, It's great that we can worship God together and it's great that we can come now to God's word, which is what we're going to do. Did you appreciate the rain and the showers yesterday? Did you get caught in the rain or the showers yesterday? You've got 10 seconds to swap your storm stories with people that are in and around you. Go, right now. Turn and share your stories, positive or negative. Find someone you've not spoken to yet. Okay, that's round about your 10 seconds up. That's round about your 10 seconds up. I dare say somebody would have said something like, well, of course, we need it. It's good for the garden. And, uh, I also suggest that there was probably people that were complaining about all the sunshine that we'd had because it was too hot were then also complaining about the rain that we then had, uh, as is substitute. We're never really satisfied, are we? We've been looking at and exploring a book in the Bible in the New Testament called James, written, surprise, surprise, by James, a load of Bible scholars we've got here this morning. That's brilliant. James was the kind of half-brother of Jesus. He was writing his letter round about AD 60 to Christians. In other words, those people who follow Jesus. And as we've discovered, James can be pretty punchy with what he says that may well be uncomfortable for some it may well be quite unpalatable for others i quite like it because you know what you're going to get with james he tells it as it is it's very very black and white like the phrase i once read which i i've got written out uh, at home which says this say what you mean mean what you say but don't say it mean There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? Say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. We've called this series, No Restrictions. And of course, even saying that word, no restrictions, we're filled with a bit of... But then in brackets, to putting our faith into practice. And it's really that bit in, bra- in brackets that is today's focus when we get to James chapter two. If you've got a Bible, then please do look that up. It's towards the end of the New Testament. What have we looked at so far? We've looked at who this letter was for, what it says about enduring tough times, where we see our status and our identity. We've looked at the issue of favoritism, the importance of treating people equally, And today, if James was able to sort of like give us one line, I would imagine it would be something like this. I don't give a jot if you call yourself a Christian. I want to know that that's the case by what you do. Simple as that. Very black and white and blunt. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Eve, who's going to come and read this passage to us. James chapter 2, beginning from verse 14. Thanks, Eve.
1: Good morning, everyone. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together— and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures was, was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and set them off on a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead.
0: Thank you, Eve. It's a fascinating uh, passage because I think this can communicate to us at different levels. For the non-Christian, there is the challenge for us here to consider faith. For the Christian, it shouts out and screams out the fact that actions speak louder than words. For the Christian who's been a believer for some time, well, there's a bit of a challenge there because we always like to come back to that phrase that we are saved in Christ alone. But there's clearly the challenge from James who says in verse 24 that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And for all of us, there's then the reality of the demonic world that's presented as well to us by James. But more than this, that they too have a belief in God. So there's probably something here for everybody, but it isn't all going to be sweetness and light and nice and comfy, okay? So if you're here for a comfy ride, bye. You might as well disappear now. Okay. It was George Michael, I think, who said or who sang, you've got to have faith. And I'm sure other people have used that phrase, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus was one of the ones that said it first. We all, of course, have faith this morning. I don't care who you are. You've all already demonstrated faith. And if you're not here today, but you are watching this uh, back where you are at home, I dare say you're expressing faith as well, unless you're standing up. Now you know what I mean. You're immediately thinking, well, it's what you're sat on. You've each demonstrated faith as you came in here that when you went to sit on a chair, that chair, regardless of your weight, and let's not go there, was having to have the capacity of being able to hold you up. You looked around, you saw these chairs, and you thought, I know what that is. It's a chair. It's going to be able to take my weight, whatever size. And when I exercise that faith and sit on the chair, I'm not going to fall flat. I've looked around and I've seen other people that have demonstrated that kind of faith and nobody that I can see has actually uh, collapsed on the floor. Although I did recognise that actually something happened at the back, didn't it, Charlene? But we won't go there, uh, tipping off a chair um, accidentally this morning. Thankfully that wasn't being live streamed, Charlene, so you'll be all right about that. So in one sense we all exercise a degree of faith. By what we see in and around us. But what we're going to be thinking about this morning is three different kinds of faith. And if you're into alliteration, then you'll like this because it all begins with the letter D. Dead, demonic and dynamic faith. That's where we're going to be going. But first, we need to note this, that faith is essential for spiritual life. If you want some Bible verses, Hebrew chapter 11, verse 6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 tells us that Christians are to live by faith. And whatever we do apart from faith is described as sin in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. If you get to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we see there that we are saved as Christians by faith, not through what we do. That's what it means to be a Christian. Contrary to how people can sometimes assume that they are a Christian because they do good things. I'm a do-gooder, so I must therefore be a Christian. It's great. That's a blessing to others. And for believers, there is an eternal reward for that which we do. But I'm not going to go there this morning. There isn't any verse in the Bible whatsoever that tells us that through doing good things, you then become a Christian. Not one. The New Testament only ever highlights one kind of saving faith and that is in Jesus through what he's achieved for us when he died on the cross and rose again. James is brutally declaring that if we have had that transformational experience then it should be obvious by the way that we live our lives by what we then do. That's where the good works bit fits in, if you like. Not to become a Christian, but rather to prove that you are one. Which is why he says in verse 18, You show me your faith without deeds, but I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now, I I don't think he's saying that as some kind of example for us to say, Hey, look at me, everybody. I'm a Christian because look what I'm about to do. I've, you know, seen that somebody's without a face mask here. or well, I borrow mine. That's not the sort of thing that he's alluding to uh, whatsoever. At least I hope he isn't. No, not at all. We are all of us on a faith journey. Now, it may well be that you're here today and you're not even sure whether or not there's a God, but you're still on a faith journey. It may well be that you've been a Christian for years. Maybe there have been a few blips on the way. Welcome to the club. That happens to all of us. Let's be honest. But we're each of us on that faith journey journey you might not really know where you are right now you might not even know really what you believe if that's the case and you're here today what a brilliant place you've decided to come for whatever reason because this is a safe environment for you to explore and think through what it is that you believe up here and what it is you believe in there and what is going to then result as an outcome of that Sometimes I've had conversations with with people and it's not that people put you on a pedestal, but people would say, oh, if only I had your faith, as if it's something that only belongs to me in that conversation. Well, you are able to have that faith. Why? Because faith is a decision of the will. It's an act of the will. It's a decision of what we are choosing to believe. I can't make any decision for you or for anybody else about what you believe. That is your decision and yours alone, isn't it? Faith is something that comes from what we choose to believe in response to what God has already done. And we've sung about that as well as what I've already shared. And also as a result of what God has already said. And we've got that in his word. And James is a part of that. So our job as we come to this is to say, "Okay, God, what is it that was going on here for these believers that James was communicating to? What on earth, then, scratch head, does that mean for the likes of ourselves in this year? That's what we're going to be thinking about today. So let's think about the first of those types of faith, dead faith. Dead faith is only really about words. It's head knowledge and belief, an ability to say the right things, pray the right prayers, quote the right Bible verses, but a person's walk doesn't match their talk. Verse 14, James says, well, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but then has no Deeds. He said there's kind of like a bit of a contradiction uh, there. The answer to his rhetorical question that he asked about what good is it, well, basically, is that it's no good at all. He gives that example of if someone is, uh, is in need uh, of daily food and someone says, Well, go, I wish you w- well, keep warm and well fed. It's like ourselves recognizing the need. So, well, God will provide for you, but not through me. Thank you very much. And then we walk in a different direction. That's the kind of challenge that James is issuing to people. Jesus quoted the Old Testament prophet Isaiah on one occasion, Mark chapter 7, verse 6. And he said to the religious of his day, maybe the church going public of the day, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's a challenge, isn't it, to think about where we fit into that. Some people would say, I've always been a Christian. Others would not necessarily see themselves as sinners in the same as others who have obviously done really bad things as if they somehow themselves deserve to be saved. Some people believe that they're a Christian, as I alluded to earlier, because they're a good person or because they have a head belief in God. Can that kind of faith save you? Well, James is saying no. And that's the challenge, really. But he goes one step further than that, because in verse 19, he says to his congregation, well, you believe that there is one God and you can imagine this course of yes." And he says, well, well done. That's the same as the demons then. Oh, Now, that makes us feel very uncomfortable, doesn't it? Very uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, it ought to. And more about that in a few moments time. Three times, though, in this passage, James emphasises that faith without works is dead, useless, of no value. Verses 17, 20, and 26. He's building on what he said towards the end of uh, chapter 1, where he says there, in verse 22, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I wonder how many times you've been in, not necessarily this church, but any church, and on the way out, you thank the preacher or whoever's been leading and taking part. Thank you so much for that word you've brought. That was brilliant. I can now live completely the same as I was beforehand. Or maybe we've left the building thinking, wow, wasn't that such a great message for Mrs. Such-and-Such over there or for Mr. Such-and-Such. James is saying, no, I want you to do what it says. Or you, if you're actually watching this online, you're not going to actually escape. That's where the challenge comes in. Any declaration of faith that doesn't result in a changed life is a dead faith. It's counterfeit. It lulls the person into some kind of false confidence of eternal life. Jesus was pretty hard hitting in Matthew chapter 7. That there's going to be some surprises one day to those people or to some people that call him Lord, Lord. And he's going to say to them one day, I never knew you. I don't know you. It's probably one of the most challenging and unpalatable uh, phrases that Jesus uses to his hearers. He tells us that there's going to be many, not few who are going to be surprised on that day of judgment. Why? Because they assume that they are all okay. Complacency is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Complacency at any level across the Christian church, where it's a piece of cake to turn up, isn't it? And to actually have a, a vague kind of faith. There's going to be some huge challenges. Warren Wearsby said, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same, any more than he can come into contact with a 220 volt wire and remain the same. Now that's not to say if you become a Christian, you're going to get electrocuted. Don't misunderstand the illustration. Basically, if you come into contact with this living Jesus Christ, there is going to be a reaction. And there ought to be. When you think about it, because someone becomes a Christian, they have God by his Holy Spirit coming to live within them. This is the creator of the entire universe. How can that occur and not impact your life and mine if it's a real experience and a real encounter? One of our church forefathers said, without change, there's probably no conversion. So dead faith is only about words. Next, we've got this whole sense of the demonic, demonic faith, if I can call it that, is about words and emotions only. And I'll explain what I mean. We read that verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons who are the workforce of Satan have some kind of faith. Now, I knew that if I said that this morning and paused, there'd be a bit of a twitchiness, we feel, in, in, our, in our seats. It doesn't make us feel comfortable. For others of us, maybe we'll think, oh, I'm going to dismiss that. That's kind of airy-fairy stuff. We're not talking about what you might see on a horror film. We're not talking about the little cartoon characters that pop up. If you ever watch Tom and Jerry, we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about spiritual creatures who are real, evil and destructive. Very real. No, they're not saved. No, they won't be in heaven at all. So we don't need to be looking under our bed in any sense of, of worry at all. But they are real and they seek to carry out their own master's plan to destroy Christians. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 said that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Have you ever seen a devour a lion? Devour its prey. That is a picture of what the, this, the forces of evil wanting to do with anyone who claims to follow Jesus. That's not very comfortable, is it? Demons, though. Do believe that there is one God. Did you realize that that is closer to Christian truth than Hindu faith, which believes that there are many gods? It's closer to Christian truth than it is to Buddhism that isn't really sure whether or not there's a God at all. Demons are monotheists and Trinitarian, which, in case you're confused, is actually what we are here. We believe there's one God. We believe in that God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How how do we know that? Well, we know that demons believe that Jesus was God. Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 uh, say that. We haven't got time to look it up. We know that demons believe there is a place of condemnation. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. We know as well that demons believe that Jesus will be the judge of all. In Matthew 8, verses 28 and 29. Check those out. And you can download this afterwards in case you've not managed to scribble those verses down. But demons are not And cannot be saved. Why? Because salvation hasn't been offered to them. It's too late for any such beings. Salvation is offered to the likes of you and me. So you can pause from all the dark stuff. And don't look so worried. Because I've just given you some good news. Salvation is offered to you. And to me. And we make a choice. Yes or no. And we reap The reward of our choice. If we choose no, it's no one else's fault. We can't really take the line of how can God send people to hell when I've made that choice. But we each of us have this opportunity to choose Jesus. So what kind of faith is it that these demons then uh, have got? Well, all we've got here is that they believe that there's one God and shudder. That word in verse 19 means uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent shaking from extreme fear. Why are they afraid? Well, because they know that right theology is never enough. Just knowing stuff here, up here is never enough. They also know the end result for them. To shudder, though, doesn't sound like having a very positive faith, does it? I mean, imagine me here this morning issuing an invitation to anybody that would like to become a Christian. Here we go. If you've heard and you've liked what you've heard, I'd like you to come forward, please, or raise a hand or whatever. There's going to be some form of altar call. And as a result of that newfound faith, you are going to be trembling in your boots and filled with fear. That doesn't sound like a very positive faith for us to have, does it? That's not what God is wanting to have you and me at all wouldn't be a, a great advert would it the faith of demons may well involve their intellect it may well indeed involve their emotions that sense of shuddering but they're still lost and you know it struck me that a person can be enlightened in their mind even stirred in their heart but still lost forever because they've still not made a choice to recognise who Jesus is, repent of their sin, believe what Jesus did when He died for them on the cross, and made a choice of following. Do you see? So, demonic faith is just about words and emotions only. True saving faith involves something more, something that can be seen and recognised, a change life. That's why James says in verse 18, show me your faith without deeds, but I will show you my faith by what I do. It's more than intellectually having a belief and it's more than having an emotional experience. Uh, And I'm sure we've each met believers who can fall into one of those two camps where there's an overdone emphasis because of the way that we're wired, where we're into the head knowledge and we need to dot I's and cross T's. Or maybe we're the other perspective, where we enter into that heartfelt experience, maybe getting lost in worship. All of those can be very good and healthy, so long as that's not all it is. That's what James is wanting to probe at and to push at. He's saying either of those extremes is not enough. It needs to translate from something on the inside that affects those people around us. Like when you suddenly lob a stone into a lake and there's that ripple effect. So there ought to be the ripple effect of good in and around people who know you and who know me. And just before we move on, I ought to say that if you have ever had an experience that was of a dark origin something that's involved some form of occultic uh, practice uh, in terms of some involvement with the demonic i have to tell you that that does need to be dealt with you may well need to be set free uh, from that whatever it is that uh, you were dabbling with uh, in your past it may well be that you will never be fully free unless you address that acknowledge that and renounce that Uh, If that is you, we don't stand in judgment on you, but we would love to stand with you and support you within that as we listen to you and pray uh, for you. It's not something to be frightened of. Uh, In my experience, these kind of things are a lot more straightforward than dealing with someone that's struggling with a whole mental health issue or with depression or something like that that is very, very complex. My experience of the demonic is is very straightforward and as it appeared in the word of God. Just acknowledge Jesus. He comes in and sorts out all the stuff that needs to be sorted out. But we hear these phrases and get a bit spooked out or freaked out. No need. God is the God who he says in his word. And he will do what he says he's going to do. So do not fear. But I thought it'd be worthwhile to mention that. Lastly, on a more positive, let's think about that fruit that James is really uh, uh, looking for. And that's dynamic faith, which affects our whole selves. Dead faith might touch the intellect in terms of what we say we believe, but that's probably it. Demonic faith may well touch the mind and our emotions, but there's still no transformational experience involving repentance. Dynamic faith affects the heart, mind and the will. The mind understands the truth. The heart feels the reality of the truth. It's the will that acts on the truth. But that's the tough part, isn't it? Making the decision to do something about it. Making a decision to no longer be on the fence. Making a decision to put your faith and my faith into practice day by day. Why is that so tough? because every single day we've got that tug of war that goes on within us haven't we two of us brilliant I'll have a cup of tea with those two people it's tough and if you want to know how tough it is read the humor that Paul comes out with in Romans chapter 7 between verses 15 and 25 and he said oh, I don't know what I'm paraphrasing here and I don't know if he had a squeaky voice a bit sort of joe pascali esque i don't know what i'm doing here the good that i so much want to do i want to be putting into practice what james is on about that's not what i end up doing but the bad stuff i don't want to end up like that but i keep on going back doing it ah, i can't understand what's going on and that causes a frustration for him we know in and of, our, of ourselves what it means to be a christian to live like a christian but it's blooming hard isn't it don't you think it is hard And if you think it's hard and it's tough, welcome to Dorchester Community Church. Because we've got a bucket load of other people who also find it really tough. If you find it a piece of cake and dead easy, this is not the church for you. I don't mind saying that. Because I know the people that come to this church. And we feel okay about saying we're not okay. Most of us. At least some of the time true faith leads to action and hence why james then cites two biblical examples but talk about chalk and cheese abraham was a man rahab was a woman that's no big deal in our culture it would have been to the people that he was sharing it with here they would have taken note of this uh, this testimony and witness of a man but a woman so what his culture i'm not saying that that's right but notice the contrast Abraham was the father of the Jews, God's people. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a godly man. Rahab was, oh no, it's in church, I'm going to say it, prostitute.
1: (sighs) Don't stone me!
0: You can't stone me. God's word calls her that five times. Five times. He doesn't duck away from her lifestyle. Abraham was known as a friend of God. Rahab had belonged to the enemies of God. You couldn't have more of a polar opposite of these two characters. Yet both exercised faith in God and both demonstrated saving faith through what they then did. That's the point that James is wanting to get across. And so that he makes sure he keeps his hearers with him, he cites Abraham first. <laughs> In verse uh, 20, uh, 21, he says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, aside from what at first glance looks like the promotion of, ch- uh, of child sacrifice, which it isn't, some critics then look at that verse and see a contradiction in god's word and i want to uh, explain briefly why the apostle paul we've already quoted him uh, earlier in romans chapter 3 and 4 and in galatians chapter 2 uh, uh, chapter 2 and 3 holds up abraham as the father of faith because he believed god and so was justified by faith alone but james seems to state exactly the opposite, doesn't he? That Abraham was justified by works. To understand what's going on, we need to not take those two bits out in isolation or get upset about it, but rather we need to understand what was going on at the time. Because Paul and James are citing two completely different examples, with 15 years gap, roughly, in between the two. Paul, in saying that Abraham was justified by faith, is referring to events in Genesis chapter 15, where God promises to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations and that the Messiah would come through him. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, we read there, Abraham believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous in the sight of God, justified before God. This is what we read in Romans chapter 4 verse 3 and Galatians 3 verse 6. How do we we get eternal life? How are we justified? Exactly the same way that Abraham was, by faith alone. But James there goes and upsets the apple cart, doesn't he? Because he then says... That Abraham was justified by works. Eh? What's all that about then? But we don't need to leave it there. When James says this, when does he say that that happened? When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. When was that? It was 15 years later in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham was justified, declared righteous by God in Genesis chapter 15. But in Genesis chapter 22, he's illustrating that his faith was proved real by what he did. James was a Bible scholar. He would have known what happened back in chapter 15 and then what's occurring several chapters later in chapter 22. And his faith was then proved real. But he actually had faith way back in chapter 15. So he says in verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. Working together. So his faith was made a complete by what he did that word complete sometimes translated perfect in the original greek means mature works helps keep your faith alive and growing over the last 18 months uh, or 16 months the whole pandemic thing it's been hard for us as a church here at, at our hq if you like to keep different things going because we've not been allowed to have we And yet, if we think back to those things that we were involved in, whatever ministries it was, whether it's community kids, community tots, life groups, whatever, all of those things that you did helped keep your faith alive, didn't they? Yeah, we need that kind of stuff. So without that, many of us have had a a real struggle because it's been down to our own keeping ourselves going. That's been the importance, really, for the live streaming and stuff like that. So thank God for people like Charlene and Andrea, Wei Yang uh, and James and others who've been brilliant uh, in that regard. Philip uh, Melanthon says this. He said, we're saved by grace alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. For Abraham, it took a long time for his faith to mature as it does. No surprise for ourselves. Uh, Also, he experienced uh, life's ups and downs he doubted god for a while he lied about his wife he got involved in sexual immorality with his maidservant he wasn't a good father to ishmael he had some serious issues going on what was the matter with that guy why wasn't he perfect like the likes of you and me who turn up with our sunday best smile assuming that uh, everybody else can pick up that life is a better of roses it ain't is it we make mistakes and life is tough and sometimes those mistakes are costly and we've got regrets. Isn't that true for each and every one of us? Notice the more we go on, there's more people than two now saying yes, because we realise we're on the same page. By his faith, but Abraham's faith was maturing because even though he had numerous failures, he was trying day by day to walk with his God. And that all comes to light between Genesis 15 and 22. Back in chapter 15, he believed God and so was justified but then he, it's not until t- chapter 22 that his faith had matured enough through his works that people began to think of him as righteous too. I think that's really quite encouraging for the rest of us, to know there's that sense of journey, even for people like the heroics of Scripture. who might like, oh dear, I'm never going to be anybody like him. But he also had those pitfalls and those doubts and those ups and downs. And it's kind of like God saying, come on, we're in this together. I know what you're like anyway you can't fool me. Let's be real. Be real with God. Be real with one another. We're on that sense of journey. But James is not done. He doesn't just leave it with that iconic uh, hero called Abraham. He knew that for many of his readers, Abraham was a hero. He was the first Jew, their founding father. So James then chooses to give another example. Rahab. Here's what happened. If you don't know the story very briefly, you can read about it in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament between chapters two and six. Two Israelite spies uh, showed up in Jericho and they stayed with Rahab, the prostitute up to you to debate why that was. They probably told her that God was going to destroy Jericho because that was what the the word of the Lord had been given and uh, and give the promised land to Israel rahab believed what god had said romans chapter 10 reminds us that faith comes from hearing we don't know where she'd been up until that point in her own journey maybe she then told the spies that she believed she'd come to that point where she could say these words i know that the lord has given you this land so would they then please in return spare her and her family when jericho is going to be destroyed They didn't know. They had no way of knowing whether or not what she was saying was going to be uh, the truth. So they asked her to prove her faith, to put it into practice through her actions. They told her to protect them, to hide them, to let them escape without getting caught, to put her own life in danger by not revealing where they went. And then her, her family members... uh, her family members in in her house and then uh, to also then let down a scarlet cord from a window in the wall and God would deliver her. That's exactly what she did. Rahab believed and proved her faith to be real by what she did. That's why she's cited here as an example. The result was that many are saved. The lives of those two spies, her own life and the life of her family when Jericho then fell to the Israelites. Moreover, Rahab is listed in the messianic line of Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 and also as an example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 yeah let's be honest what do we know about a lifestyle <laughs> you haven't got to mention any words out loud it's okay three times in the old testament twice in the new testament She's listed as Rahab the prostitute. You would have thought, really, that once would have been enough, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have thought God would have understood that there would have been a time where this would have been read out in Britain, in England, where we don't kind of find those words easy to read. Yet it's almost as if God is wanting us to get the understanding that Rahab was, this was what she was, this was who she was, and this is what she did. I think that's quite incredible. He didn't say that to shame or embarrass her, but to demonstrate the potential of what God can do with a person of faith. Because you know where God starts with you and me? He starts with where you are at right now. If you are in the pit of despair, God is wanting to meet with you right there. If you walked into this building as an atheist, God knows... And there is a God and he knows. And he's wanted to meet you right where you are. If there's something that is going on in your life that you want no one else in this room to know about. God wants to meet you there. Not to give you a slap, but to say, I love you. Come, come as you are. That's what he did for Rahab. I think that's amazingly brilliant news come as you are oh but i'm not religious someone would say oh but i don't know anything oh but i'm scared but i've done a lot of awful things but i'm not living right right now come as you are regardless of where we are in that journey that's the open invitation as we come to worship uh, god now if Our musicians want to get ready come as you are let me just let you know where rahab ended because she didn't stay where she was when she chose to have faith. What happened in terms of her own journey? She left her life of prostitution. She leaves all her past gods behind. She becomes an Israelite, one of God's people who believed in the one true God. She marries a godly man named Salmon. They have a son called Boaz, and from his family tree, you get King David. And through the line of King David was born the Lord Jesus Christ, your saviour and mine. Is that not a turnaround and legacy? Come on, let's hear it. I think that's amazing. Who knows what God might yet do? Through meeting you at whatever starting point, you have grabbing him at that invitation he 's issuing to you to go on a journey that journey can start now. Come as you are let 's worship God together. hand over to Helen and the band as we uh, as we conclude, let me just summarize by saying that. Abraham and Rahab are not examples of how to get saved. That's not why they're there in the book of James. They're illustrations of how real faith is revealed through our actions. The question is, what faith have we got? No faith? Dead faith? Demonic faith? Dynamic faith? Or are we just a churchgoer? If we're going to ask ourselves, each of us, a question, it ought to be, what type of faith have I got? According to James, faith without deeds is dead. He gives us that illustration, doesn't he, of what real faith looks like that we ought to mirror. Not teaching us what salvation looks like, but rather what faith, real faith, looks like. Even though it takes faith to be saved, These examples that are given in James are about real faith, producing actions of faith. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to uh, worship together, to meet together, to listen to your word, to pray, to explore what... It is that you might be saying to us by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. We pray that you might help us to get on board with whatever it is you're wanting to do with us in our own journey, wherever we're at. Thank you, God, that you meet us where we are. We pray that you would do that. We pray that you'd help us to be open to that touch from you. We pray that you would give us courage to act on anything that we recognise as being for ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. If you've been watching this online, or you're here today, and there's got any questions that that you've popped in your mind, please do let us know. We'd love to hear from you, and we do endeavour to get back to people as soon as possible. I want to just touch on one thing that um, Michelle said. I believe that God put that in Michelle, not just as a word, but sometimes a word is accompanied by a feeling, and Michelle that had that physical sensation that went along with that. It's the word shame. We don't like that word shame. But the antidote to that we find in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, which simply says this, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, there is no need to be ashamed because we know the one that we can come to. If we are not yet a Christian, the good news that I leave with you is whoever you are, whatever you've done or feel that you are doing, that, can, that shame can be ended the moment we say a yes to him that's wanted to eliminate that sense of condemnation. God bless you. Thanks so much for coming. God bless.